Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Christopher Patterson. I am an assistant professor at the New York Institute of Technology here in Nanjing, China. I am the host of this podcast, New Books in Asian American Studies. Today, we are joined by Sean Metzger, who is an associate professor of performance studies in the UCLA School of Theater, Film, and Television. We will discuss his book, Chinese Looks, Fashion, Performance, Race, which was published by Indiana University Press in April of this year, 2014. Chinese Looks examines how, in the past 150 years, China was rendered legible to Americans through items of clothing and adornment. Professor Metzger offers a rich and detailed study of Chinese fashion, calling it the Sino-American interface that marks political and cultural investments in America's views of China and Chinese Americans. Professor Metzger does this by providing a cinematic and performance-based cultural history of four iconic objects, the Q or man's hair braid, the woman's suit or the chi pao, the Mao suit, and the tuxedo. Rather than simply provide a consumptive or a kind of trading history of these garments, uh, Professor Metzger traces their emergence as consolidating discourses of gender, race, politics, and uh, aesthetics. In doing so, he asks larger questions about how garments can and have been used to express ethnicity and to render new meanings onto racialized body. Uh, so, Sean, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you very much for your interest. Uh, could you begin the interview by telling us a bit about what brought you to study fashion in China or American perceptions of fashion in China and then your personal kind of interest in performance and adornment? Yeah, I, I think fashion for me it was a relatively new field, but there was a lot of, in, in the last two decades, there's been a lot of interest in visual studies in general and fashion in particular. Mm -hmm. So with Asian American studies, of course, there's the very um, well-reputed blog by... Um, Minha mm -hmm. and uh, Mimi, uh, Mimi Wen and Minha Pham, right, and yeah. other work by Tui Tu and other other folks who are working on this kind of area. So that I mean, helped me think about how, what bodies might do, or how we might think about race and bodies together if we didn't only think about skin. So I was really mm -hmm. interested in thinking of not just about phenotype in terms of racialization, partly mm -hmm. because I'm also race. So I was thinking about how I registered Chineseness as well. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a very fascinating part of your book, too, when you kind of go into detail uh, about that. You call it the skein of race, S-K-E-I-N. Uh, yeah, I think you call this the, the method of the book. Um, it was quite interesting to me, uh, also because I'm mixed race, I suppose, but because uh, there is the... You, you can talk about this, about the appropriating fashions without necessarily saying it like gives agency or gives empowerment you know, like it, it seems like we're able to talk about fashion in a way that doesn't kind of just reduce it to a type of resistance, but, all, but is kind of made more, more complex through um, taking a, a type of material and using it to, to appropriate how people are already seeing the racialized body, which I thought was really fascinating. Can you, uh, sorry, I don't mean to take up too much, but are you, uh, can you describe this, the skein? I think it's pronounced skein, right? Skein of race. Uh, how does that method uh, come forth in your book? So I'm, I was interested, actually, my original theoretical anchor for my project was in fetishism. So I was interested mm. at, in fetishism, particularly because it was both uh, kind of commodification and also a psychic investment. Mm -hmm. And in other words, it produced a kind of pleasure and also a kind of peril. So I was interested in that double resonance of fetishism and the way that we invest in objects, mm. both for better and for worse. It seemed like, and fashion, of course, does that. I mean, it's something we use every day, something we adorn ourselves every day, either subconsciously or not. And we also participate every day in sort of regimes of commodification. So whether we want to or not, especially if you're an American, it's difficult to get outside of thinking through, like, where do our clothes come from? At the same time, I, there's pleasure in that. So I didn't want to deny that fact that we are attracted to things, we're attracted to surface appearances. Mm -hmm. And fashion was very useful for me to think about that, that kind of doubleness, that kind of surface of encounter. Um, beyond that kind of more or less sort of superficial engagement, I had been thinking a lot about Franz Fanon's work because I had been taken early on with Caribbean intellectual history, and Fanon's work had registered with me very powerfully. But it was really the work on um, you know, his psychic mechanisms for race and its disavowal that that were 
particularly poignant for me, and that had to do with skin, mm. as you know, um, and, and looking. In his work on Algerian women, though, he turned from skin to clothing, and so that for me was very a very productive mood, of, and I wanted to elaborate it, because I'd, I'd read a lot about Fanon's work, and a lot of commentators had talked about his work on racialization, but the stuff on Algeria had come to the fore really in terms of political meanings mm. and not so much in terms of how we might appropriate that work or adapt that work for thinking about racialization in other contexts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that work that you're mentioning is Algeria Unveiled. Uh, I'm just looking at your book, so that's how I know. But I'm, I'm also, I was, I was struck because I had never uh, read a lot of Fanon and never heard of that particular text, and it was very interesting to me um, how he does focus so much on fashion in that text. Um, it was also uh, interesting because, um, as I told you before the interview, when I first saw the book, I thought it was a kind of Chinese studies or area studies kind of text. And then as soon as you get into it, you realize it's, it's really kind of doing, it's putting together so many different discourses. You know, the, you got like the Asian American critique, uh, performance studies, as you were saying. Uh, but, and then all, a lot of this gathered around um, Franz Fanon's ideas, which is what you seem to, the, the theorists that you use the most, I suppose, um, in the introduction, at least. Uh, can you talk about how, how you kind of negotiated um, all these different uh, discourses and what that kind of means um, for the field of, like, transnational studies? Like, is this a problem that con can you, continues to come up in transnational studies? Uh, yeah, I can talk about that. I think, for me, I should say first that all my degrees are in different disciplines. Mm -hmm. So my undergrad degree is in humanities and psychology, and then my... Well, I started my PhD in comparative literature and took a master's in that field, and then I finished in performance studies. So I had, and I had done quite a lot of work in film studies as well. So for me, I had always been interested in a particular intellectual question, but that question would traverse different disciplines. And mm -hmm. I've always been attracted to programs in terms of my training that would allow me to pursue intellectual questions through different disciplinary lenses. Mm -hmm. um, I think when you start to do transnational work, I think you need different disciplinary lenses because any individual lens will not account for your particular object. So in my case, I, was, I wanted to be faithful, if I can say that, to the objects of my study. So that meant tracing them through whatever circuits they were moving through. So even though I was looking at film and theater, those, those media spilled into different sorts of discourses and some of the, so from like journalism in the U.S. So that required more of an American studies kind of cultural history. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to talk about how these objects at least initially emerged in China and that was really a, a Chinese studies, I mean the work on that, that, that kind of emergence had been done in Chinese studies. Um, when I started the project, I felt it was a bit overwhelming. So it took me, I mean, this project took me a long time, but partly mm -hmm. it was because I was trying to figure out how I would navigate between these different fields and what the, how I would keep a focus, mm -hmm. like moving discipline to discipline to discipline. And ultimately, the foci for me were fashion, obviously, and then performance, because performance registered both in the cinema of cinema to me and then also in the everyday life and the theatrical performance. So that enabled me to cross lots of different areas. It still was a lot. So I felt like, I mean, I, I think it took me 10 years to work through all the history of these objects. And I left out, you know, a lot of the, the Chinese side of things. I really focused on the American stuff. But that, that still took me a long time going through archives to figure out so what was happening in, in like, the 1890s when I felt like there was a shift happening in Chinese-U.S. relations. Mm -hmm. uh, so part of my book also addresses political questions, and those political questions are just not from just an American side, but also the Chinese side, um, principally. Well, of course, there's, there's other players involved, but those were the two that I had to learn the most about, that, that is Chinese politics and U.S. domestic politics. And... That, I think, is also covered in those areas of knowledge are usually separated. Mm. Um, and in Asian American studies, actually, we've tended to focus more on a kind of domestic or North American um, location. And I think if you are going to trace objects that circulate across Asia and the U.S., or even looking at capital streams that move across Asia and the U.S., you have to know something 
about what happens in Asia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was inspired by your book because you're not only talking, you're not only doing all this at once, but you're also talking about a particular um, global situation that's happening right now with China as this kind of um, a, a more of a global heavyweight, I should, I guess I could say. Uh, mm. And it's kind of difficult to see it through just an Asian American studies lens in the sense that it's uh, handled now as an up and coming global power. And it's not really neo-colonial, not really a semi-colonial, right? Not really a, a colonized state that's dependent on a, on a relationship with a Western country. It's something quite different and kind of a, an empire in its own right in many ways. Um, I'm just kind of curious how you handle this, trying to put this lens on this um, on this power that has so much political investment right now, and how you could comment upon that uh, through this uh, looking at the garment work. Mm-hmm. I think I, I one of the reasons I ended up focusing on this is because I thought it was important, and it's important partly because people are paying attention to China in ways that they have not before. Mm. Uh, I think a friend of mine, Sylvia Chong, had said, oh, if you'd been doing this several years ago, it might have been Japanese looks because <laughs> that would have had you know, all the headlines. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's true that China is the perhaps the emergent global power, and people care about it. So I wanted to speak to something that – I wanted to do a humanities project on something that people found important and I found important. And it happens that my personal interests coincided with all these big changes happening more globally. So that was fortuitous in my case. Mm. But I would also say that, like in the introduction, for example, I had I originally, uh, well, originally, I one of the drafts of the introduction was about Yao Ming and the Shaoshu Minfu at the Olympics. So mm. it started these global geopolitics, and then it was it was even more unwieldy. So it was adding even more layers into it. And people said, oh, you can't do that because it's you're adding in too many layers of complication now. And it's supposed to be the introduction. You're supposed to set up your argument, not confuse people. So <laughs> when I um, when I was working through it, I decided, okay, so I need something that's going to be more easier to, to trace without moving my readers into fits of, of confusion. Mm. So... As it happens, I had had this picture of my grandparents mm-hmm. with me. I think everywhere I've moved, I've had it with me, and I have always looked at it, and I've always sort of wondered about it. So I let that be the anchor. I mean, this is a picture of my grandparents. My grandmother is uh, in a chipao, and my grandfather is in a Western-style suit. Mm-hmm. This is uh, the, the cover photo. This is the cover photo, mm-hmm. yeah. So that helped me think through, okay, so maybe, I mean, I've been carrying this picture with me for years and years and years, Maybe this project is important to me for personal reasons that I haven't quite um, thought enough about. So I Mm. put that in the introduction because I felt like, well, this is something I can think about more. And then I lined it up with just other ways that I had seen just within my own family context, the way that one garment had registered Chineseness. At the same time that a, a Western outfit was always present next to it. So I was sort of interested in that in that contrast. And that became a way for me to find a way into very complicated transnational dynamics. So I started with individual agents that I knew very, very intimately, and then moved into the more global stuff. And ultimately, I think that works much better, although it's very resistant to making those changes initially. I think it works a lot better. It's, it's easier for the reader, and it's also more personally meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I know my mom saw the saw the book cover. She almost cried. It was so it was actually very moving in that way. Um, so I was really glad that I that I ended up doing that. Yeah, it, it was either that one or the the photo in the book that comes right after, which is the Zhang Ziyi. Uh, um, it should also be said that we're both speaking from China right now, which is kind of interesting. You're in Shanghai right now. I'm in Nanjing. But in the book, you you kind of refer to this this idea of China as something so incomprehensible and just something so big. Uh, I think you, you refer to it kind of as the ubiquity that China represents, mm. um, and thus the work of making China legible through garments or something else um, seems like a much more necessary project for Westerners because of this kind of immense fear of this huge population, uh, technological growth, and really not knowing what is going on in this um, gigantic country. Did you feel that China represented something uh, particularly in need of symbolic representation uh, compared to other Asian countries? 
Well, that's a good question. I mean, the only I think insofar as I consider China important in terms of its global position, not just economically mm-hmm. but culturally and also in terms of environmental impact and all those kinds of things, I felt like China needs to be thought about more. My impulse, however, was to really think about the Chinese sort of American side of things. Mm-hmm. That is, I wanted to think about um, the West and the East, if I can say that, as not so discreet as always being implicated in some way. Mm-hmm. So this is why the Chinese-American interface was important to me, so that, that it, they're not so bounded as they might seem. That is, the U.S. and China are not such bounded entities. There's a kind of... Um, uh, what do you call it? Kind of. Well, there's an interface there in which each each term is defined in terms of the other. And this mm-hmm. was following David Palumbo Lu's book on Asia um, slash American more generally. But I think it it works particularly well for Sino-American. It's, it's both. We see that happening now in terms of goods made in China that everyone consumes around the world, and also in terms of in terms of my own familial history that was always very present, like this kind of. Uh, this kind of porous boundary, or just not boundary, but this porous sort of um, interface between these these mm-hmm. these two cultural milieu. So for me, one of the interventions was to sort of undo that polarity of or that binary of east west, mm-hmm. um, which I think a lot of Asian American studies has tried to do. And I want to say that we do this every day. I mean, every day this happens on on people's bodies in terms of the kinds of things that people put on. And mm-hmm. that notion of putting on was also very important to me. Um, I try to work that out later in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, and just for the listeners, the Sino-American interface, you, it's, it's uh, depicted as Sino-slash, right? Sla- slash, not dash, or otherwise Sino-slash-American interface, um, although, as you were saying, David Palumbo-Leo. Uh, and um, I'm curious also about uh, this word interface. I um, I was just, I don't know how common this term is in fashion studies, but it seemed really interesting to me the way that you were using it. Can you say a bit about this? Because um, you also say like that Zhang Ziyi represents like a feminine interface. Uh, and then there's this thing called the Sino-American interface. Can you talk a bit about that term? Yeah, so I think for me, the image of Zhang Ziyi on Time magazine in uh, jeans and a tunic, like a short chi-pao, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, she is one way that people become, get to know China, and they interact with her image. So, as just as, that is, she is a screen image that people see all over the place. Um, she becomes one way that people come to know something about Chinese myths. So, that was one instantiation of the larger Sino-American interface. And so, for me, the Sino-American part, the slash, is because. There's a leveraging between these two terms. So each one, um, again, means in relation to the other, specifically if you're looking at the history of capitalism. So I think this follows a lot of people's work in Asian American studies, like Lisa Lowe, I mean, probably most notably, uh, but other folks as well, Grace Hong and others, who've been thinking about how circulations of capital flow and how the notion of or the consolidation of American capitalism has really depended on actions that the U.S. or relations that the U.S. has had with different sites in Asia. So in my project, I want to emphasize the Chinese sites, partly because I felt like if you look back to the Opium Wars, it's one of the earliest places where the U.S. gets involved in a, in a semi-colonial way in Asia. Obviously, mm-hmm. later on, the Philippines would register much more strongly, Japan, also Okinawa, all those places. Mm-hmm. But I, Opium Wars registered very relatively early in the in the sort of formation of the nation state, and it's uh, sort of anticipates the later neo-imperial moves that that the U.S. nation state would make in other in other regions. So I thought it was useful, and then to 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 think about those early moments, and then go all the way through different periods in history where U.S.-Chinese relations were in transition to come to the Beijing Olympics, which was seen by at least the U.S. press as China's coming out party as a global power. So mm-hmm. I wanted that long, long history is what I call the long 20th century following Arrighi's work, which is also about the um, emergence of advanced capitalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned, the, uh, the, that colonial history 
or uh, that um, violent history. It, it's strange living in China because no one ever confronts you. Never you're never confronted with that history, I suppose, like as you might be in the Philippines or in Japan. Um, just in the kind of war memorial museums, like he, in China, just living here, it's, it's kind of strikes me constantly how um, there's there, there's a kind of repression or almost like a deolian, like they just like lose face if they even mention that history. So you're not really confronted with it, and you can kind of see the same thing in the media about China. That it's rarely ever mentioned, like the Boxer Rebellion and Opium Wars. It's just kind of like this is the past, and now there's something new. Uh, that is almost completely separated from that history. Uh, so there's, I mean, that, that's also what I was getting to with the, how the Asian American studies kind of that focus on empire and colonialism seems so uh, difficult to do in this situation when you're talking about a power that's so just as interested in forgetting that history as Americans are. Yeah, I think I mean it's also because of course China is both an empire in its own right, if you will, and mm. also a semi-colonial space. And Shanghai is particularly interesting in that way because Shanghai, where I'm living now, is it was a, a, a colonial site, like divided up by mm. colonial powers. There's people still refer to the French concession, um, you know, almost almost now, a century later, they're still talking about the French concession. Mm. And you see in Pudong massive development. So the other side of the Huangpu River since 1993, when they first started to develop that area, now there's all of these gigantic skyscrapers. It's like, which one will be the highest in the world? A lot of them are built by foreign firms. So the relationship of China to a kind of nationalism and also to a kind of... Uh, or I don't know how to put this exactly, but kind of it's selling out to a kind of capitalist mm-hmm. world order. It's very complicated, um, and it, it's different in different sites, of course, within China. So I think it'd be, it's almost impossible to say, like, okay, there's one reading of how China's relationship to previously Western colonial powers and to itself, mm-hmm. how, that, how that works. Um, any, I mean, again, positionality is very important. So if you're uh, a Uyghur or, or mm-hmm. a Tibetan experience, you know, Chinese empire in a very specific way, so I think that many people I see, who I talk to on the streets, they don't, doesn't register for them if they're in the Han majority in the same kind of way. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before we get right into the, the clothing and the sections in your book, uh, one of the very illuminating parts about your method um, was how you, and we kind of talked about this in the uh, brief introduction, but how you noted this kind of immense difference between uh, seeing a garment on the screen and then seeing it performed either on a stage or like, you know, just people who pass by wearing this garment kind of as the, with this aura of the garment. And then um, as you, yeah, as you say, like actually putting on the garment and feeling what it, feeling like the material, um, feeling the kind of gendered and racialized power that it has or investment when you're walking around in it or performing it. Uh, th- that seemed like a very interesting set of differences that I usually don't see in a lot of fashion studies. And it may be because you're bringing together all these different discourses, you were able to really focus on that. Can you talk a bit about how those um, differences and how we feel, see, touch clothing, uh, what they might mean for how Americans see Chinese and Chinese Americans, how, what it means for your book? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I, well, I should say I was interested in film and theater first. Mm. So it is prior to my launching of this particular project. And those two media have different genealogies and the vocabularies for discussing um, critical, critical work in those fields is different. And I, for me, at least, I find that performance studies is often organized around live bodies and the mm-hmm. way that, you, you know, the way that people feel, and also often, I mean, around representation, but also often around agency in very particular ways. Film studies is also organized around representation, but, but the representations in terms of agency work differently. So people, I mean, you have to decide which, where you locate your, your agent, but often the screen image is not the, is not the agent, whereas you can mm-hmm. talk about, I mean, in theater, people talk about the actors or people doing things on stage as having particular agency, I think most people, because of all the post-production processes and the like, do not make the same sorts of claims about cinema. Mm. So I was interested in how those things 
things differ. And a lot of the works I was looking at cross film and theater. So like Susie Wong starts as a novel, then moves into theater, and then becomes a film production. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of the stuff that I had looked at seemed to move across different media, and as it moved across from a live performance to a mediated one or vice versa, the meanings would shift. Um, it also, that kind of shifting also made a difference when I thought about, okay, so what does this mean for for sort of a generalized spectator, if I can use that term, like mm-hmm. sort of what do they, like what do the producers of Susan Wong imagine that people are going to consume? And then how do people actually consume it? And that seems to, the at least in the in the materials I was able to find, people had very different reactions to that kind to a sexualized image that were not uh, that couldn't be fully understood by the creators, right? So some people would identify very strongly and say, like, oh, there's a kind of sensuality embodied in Chi Pao that that's productive. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, that people would veil against that and say, no, the Chi Pao, you know, the kind of representation you get of Susie Wong and stuff were were anathema to like a political consciousness. So I was interested in those those kind of contradictions, and it seemed to me it was precisely the contradictions that looking at these objects as they move through different media. Um, enabled me to track. Mm-hmm. But I guess we could start uh, with uh, your first section, which is on the queue. And I actually never even knew the name of this. I, you just kind of see representations, and you'd always know this is like Chinese-ness. Right? Uh, right. But you situate the queue, uh, the, the long man's hair braid, um, in the waning years, of course, of the Qing dynasty, but also appears um, that most notably in the representations of Chinese during debates over the Chinese Exclusion Act, and then later, um, as Yellowface seems to become more popular. Can you tell us a bit about the cue uh, and uh, the part it plays in your book? Sure, yeah. So I started, I mean, I started the book with, with, uh, uh, with the cue, as you said. Uh, the Chinese term is bianzi. Mm. Um, it's a Manchu-imposed hairstyle, which means that the crown of the head was shaved and just left a, a long plate at the back that would be braided. Um, and what I had noticed when I was, I actually can't remember how I ended up deciding that <laughs> this would be a useful object of inquiry, but I think it was because I had been reading a bunch of melodramas that mm-hmm. had featured Chinese characters, and I was trying to figure out what was consistent about the representations. And the only things that I could find that were consistent were some costume, costume pieces. At least those sort of things I could identify, because the language actually tended to be more or less gibberish. So it was hard for me to get a sense of, like, okay, this is a character. Um, <laughs> but the semiotics of the character were readily available, or that is, there was a way to read the signs of what a Chinese character, or read the signs of, that would give, point you towards a Chinese character. Hmm. Um, so I guess that's how I started. And then I, I learned, needed to learn a lot about 19th century um, Chinese-American history and, and also Chinese transnational history. So I spent a lot of time doing that. And what I discovered was that the Q had been imposed by the Manchu dynasty, from, which was in power from 1644 mm-hmm. until the end of the Qing dynasty in the early 20th century. And weirdly, even as the middle, in the middle of the 19th century, there were a lot of revolts against the Qing regime, and people were mm. shaving off their hair as a means of protest. Even as that was going on in China, in the U.S., the Chinese-American population has grown up the Chinese um, population of laborers that was there, was maintaining their hairstyles in the face of really pretty amazing obstacles. So people were being put in jail and having their head shaved, which would cause them disgrace. And even as having your head shaved would, might mean something completely different in China, it had a very specific kind of... Uh, uh, resonance for for people in the U.S. So that mm. that kind of contrast became interesting to me, and so I started to play with that. Um, ultimately, what I found was the cue initially was a way the continual visualization of the cue enabled viewers to say, okay, this this character because I was looking at melodramas again is atavistic, and if you look in and the character mm. sort of was also part of the representation in newspapers and other media. And so that Chinese character, even though they were part of creating industrial modernity in the U.S. through the transcontinental railroad construction, et cetera, they were, despite that input of labor, they were seen as um, 
uh, apart from any kind of modernization project. Mm-hmm. So it's human that they would always be part of a different era, never mm-hmm. be able to modernize, um, at least initially. And then as I did more research, what was very strange to me is, so eventually the queue, people started to shave off the queues in the U.S. too. Mm-hmm. And also um, there was... Uh, there was a question of, like, what do you do with all the hair in China when people get rid of their cues? And I started to find all these newspaper reports. And oh, right. This New York Times report. I remember this. Yeah. Yeah, and they were really, really weird. I mean, there's so many, like, people saying, oh, I found Chinese hair in my soup because soup strainers are now being made out of Chinese hair that's been taken mm-hmm. from the head of people in, in China. Um, and that was just so weird to me. And part yeah. of it was I wanted to think about the mechanization or the way in which uh, Chinese hair was being instrumentalized mm-hmm. in industrial production at the same time that Chinese people were seen as um, um, not participants mm-hmm. in the project of industrialization. So there, again, there was that contradiction there that emerged very forcefully um, where the, the China, what I call the Chinaman figure, became like a, literally a part of the industrial machinery, mm-hmm. um, both in suit painters and also in wigs and things. Um, and for me, that was just—it was such a so strange. But I wanted to. Re- so what I was thinking about was how do I transition from uh, theater where there were no actual Chinese bodies, and there were very few Chinese bodies actually performing, at mm-hmm. least in the American melodramas mm-hmm. um, in the U.S., to the representation in film, which mm-hmm. which changed qualitatively how Chinese uh, figures looked. Um, so my my reading of that was, okay, so there's this, this um, now electronic mode of production, that is cinema, that is changing the way that, uh, that that's changing what had previously been, been live representation um, at the same time that Chinese, a Chinese object is, is literally being, being made into uh, a product. So mm-hmm. that's interesting, an interesting context to me. I tried to work that out through the individual readings of um, early cinema. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in that, as you mentioned, even in that New York Times article, like, it, it could be a, a way of establishing China as finally, like at least in the American point of view, in being uh, this kind of more modern power. But instead, it, it completely does the opposite. It says that, like there's like a, um, a boat with like a ton, like an actual ton of um, of these braids of uh, of all this hair. Which I can't even imagine. It just sounds like such nonsense. Uh, and then, as you say, it, it like takes away any agency that could be associated with that by then saying um, something completely racist, like uh, the they need these hair braids in order to ascend to heaven after they die. So clearly, it's not you know by their choice that they're that this is happening or something like that. And it, it's it's a strange kind of as you're saying like a 180 of now they're modern, but oh, they're still completely mechanized and almost like robotic or in service to something else. And that, yeah. that was really fascinating. The, the fuel of, of industrialization rather than the agents of it, which I thought was interesting. Right, yeah. Um, and I think part of my, my, I mean, when I was thinking about that, one of the things I had, I had actually come across the Griffith film, I talk about the Chink at Golden Gulch mm-hmm. in grad school. Um, it's a 1910 film by um, Griffith. And then, I think 10 years later in my own development, so from grad school to the time I was a professor, I was doing this, this cinema-century working group thing with a former colleague of mine named Jane Gaines, who's an expert in silent cinema. And that film came up again by happenstance. We happened to have a copy of it um, mm-hmm. at Duke, and there's not a lot of copies actually in the U.S. So we had this, this copy, and so we were screening it, and so I started thinking about the film again and what it might mean. And subsequently, I had done a bunch of uh, research at the the University of San Francisco in the Matteo Ricci Institute, which of course is a Jesuit institution and the, the holdings are, are, were collected by Jesuits. So a lot of it is very religious uh, in terms of the materials they have. And so it made, me, it, it made me take much more seriously and think a lot about how initial information about China came into the U.S. through mm. missionary reports. And I had I started to read all these things. And then I, I so this is going back to your point about you know, people being lifted up by their tresses and going to heaven. Like <laughs> the idea that what role religion plays in the way that people understood Chineseness 
was important at this at this juncture in the sort of early 20th century. So, um, this this kind of work made me read the films differently. So I, I think I say at the in that Chinget Golden Gulch, the first scene is a scene of worship, and mm. what does that mean? Why is it a sort of a, a sort of religious um, ceremony that happens that we're first looking at? Um, I think that was useful because at the same time I was reading Colin Light's work, which is very, very, she's very good mm-hmm. on capital circulation in the early 20th century and how Asia matters in those circuits of financial flows. What she doesn't talk about is religion so much. And so mm-hmm. I was interested, for me, I think my, my, after having done all this work at the Ricci Institute, I, I started to think, okay, so what would, how does religion change our understanding? Or how does religious discourse, I should be more specific, Mm-hmm. How does religious discourse change our understanding of these flows of capital, and what does that mean in terms of representation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the uh, your second section on the Chi Pao is also uh, seems to actually kind of uh, counteract a lot of what, what we might see as religious discourses about China because it, it's kind of it, introducing women, I suppose, as a, uh, new participants in the kind of public discourse, but also in this kind of new sexuality that it represented. Uh, mm. And then the global fashion craze that it, it inspires. And what always struck me about the Chi Pao, I mean, you're in Shanghai right now, and um, I actually have this on my desk right now, this like souvenir old calendar thing of a woman in, in Chi Pao's. And it's always like something so associated with Shanghai, and then which then gets associated with um, Hong Kong. But it's as we're talking about the interface of Sino American. Uh, Sino American interface. There's also this associ- association of the Chi Pao with um, these like, kind of like running dog cultures, right? That's Shanghainese and then the Hong Kongers, and it's it's it is adopted still, but it, it still feels like it's it's part of that almost Republican era. Um, so whereas in the U.S., it it continued to to maintain its position as like just kind of representing China, um, but also as you say in the book in a completely different way than the Q, where it is, it's, it is more of a modern China, um, but not necessarily feminist China, but a more modern one. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think, so I guess the, the contrast between the first part of my book on the Q and the second part on the Qi Pao, I mean, obviously one is dealing more with the last dynasty and also masculinity, because mm-hmm. the Q was only worn by men and the Qi Pao was, uh, for the most part, only worn by women. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the the movement of my book to women also followed a movement in China towards a very explicit political discourse because China was starting to modernize. Mm. And part of the question of modernization was, what do we do when women enter public discourse? And that was a question that had not been articulated in so forceful a way ever before in the history of the country. Mm. So I think that was a, a pivotal moment um, in in China's own emergence as a nation-state and thinking about its own nationalism, and also in terms of Chinese-U.S. relations, because after the dynasty, last dynasty went, then there was a whole... They had to rethink what the relationships would be, who was going to be in power, and the early 20th century, as we all know, is very a very confusing period to figure out who you deal with in terms of the power brokers in China. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Also, by that time, because because there was so much political turmoil, a lot of uh, the people who provided um, kind of wellsprings of information about China, that is, the missionaries like Samuel Wells and other people I, I talked about, they were not welcome in China so much anymore. It was too dangerous for them to be here. So, mm. um, and you know, by that time, printing presses were you know in English were were well established. So we're getting information in different ways. So when we moved. Um, to to the Republican era, that is the 1920s and 30s, I, for me, there's a qualitative shift in how China is starting to imagine itself, and therefore a qualitative shift in how the U.S. understands and represents uh, China and Chinese-ness. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's a particularly, what from our present standpoint, it's a, it's a particularly modern view of of a modern view of of what a nation state could be, so they're they're thinking about issues that still concern us today. So they're thinking about um, questions of feminism, questions of uh, capitalism, because capitalist production is still a viable um, 
the viable mode of production in China at, mm-hmm. in, the, in the 2030s, right? And, and Shanghai is sort of the best example of that, probably. So, um, and it's no no surprise then that when people think about China's and its narration of China today and how we think of China entering into the global era, they usually go back to the 20s and 30s of Shanghai and say, like, okay, this is where things start for a Chinese um, for the growth of the Chinese economy, and at least in the Western press, the Maoist years become sort of an accident, <laughs> or you know, like something to be, be skipped over in this very strange rewriting of history. Mm-hmm. So because less a, a physical, a viable physical alternative than like a mistake. So I think uh, increasingly we're going to see even more work about the 20s and 30s. Um, in in my case, I I really wanted to contrast with the kind of heavy emphasis on masculinity to think about okay, so how do women negotiate Chineseness and how do they become agents in a discourse that had been male dominated? And therefore, I look at very particular people rather than sort of large uh, large groups. So my, I guess my first um, section of my book is in terms of Chinese people looking at large groups even if they're represented by, like, a particular yellow-faced actor. Mm-hmm. He's meant to embody large, you know, large masses. Whereas in the second part of my book on the Chi Pao, I'm much more interested in women, particular women, as agents. And they see themselves as representing a larger cause, if mm. not necessarily, you know, masses. Mm-hmm. Well, and that most of the representations of them are of women who aren't quite from the mainland, right? The Susie Wong, I think, is from Hong Kong, right? In the in the novel yeah. and in the in the film, uh, and then you you talk about Wong Kar Wai's uh, In the Mood for Love, which is a Hong Kong film. So it's it's quite interesting how that it, it like you're saying it which didn't occur to me before. It is a kind of way of almost ignoring the um, the other China, the mainland China, the PRC China. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that's helpful, too, because they're, they're all, all the women, the three women I happen to pick are all displaced in some way. So mm-hmm. I think whether they be real figures or fictional figures, mm-hmm. um, that is Anime Wong to Susie Wong, who's fiction, but she's still, I mean, she's a Shanghainese uh, refugee mm-hmm. who goes to Hong Kong, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, In the Move for Love goes back to that, to an earlier period in a, in a Hong Kong, very particular Hong Kong history, even though it's a Shanghainese community um, in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. So they're always sort of they're they're sort of part of a narrative of China, but also just a little bit outside of the mainstream of the PRC. Um, yeah, that, that's helpful actually as a framing. And uh, I wanted to to think. And for me, like the narration that I found of Chang Sum and Chi Pao from books on China hadn't accounted so much for the American side of the equation. So how did the U.S. become aware of this garment? Mm. And most of the work I'd seen traced it to Susie Wong. So mm. it happened that in 2004, I saw this retrospective of Anime Wong just before, you know, the centennial had all of these books come out. And then there was a big retrospective at, um, at UCLA and one mm. in New York as well. And when I was watching the film, she was doing a short and it, uh, it showed her introducing these dresses after her 1936, I think, trip to, to China. She was talking about fashion very specifically and the way that fashion marks a particular modern woman in China. And I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, this is great, it's like for my argument. Um, or actually, even before I had an argument, it, was started, it, it helped me move me to an argument, mm-hmm. I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how I became interested in, in Anime Wong. And again, at, the, at that moment in time, there was a lot of interest in Anime Wong because it was the centennial of her birth, and people were sort of rediscovering her and reevaluating her. Uh, a figure that in Asian American studies had sort of been discarded for a while, or had been a sort of a, a kind of figure of embarrassment, if you will, for for a lot of folks. Now mm-hmm. people were starting to think more uh, critically about her films, also because they were becoming more readily available. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, let's uh, let's turn to the the mouse suit because um, I think this offers an interesting counterpoint. Uh, in many ways to the Chi Pao, even though it, it's just so um, different living in China and talking about the Mao suit than it is in the West, where here, uh, I think you, you talk about this in the book, right? it's translated as a Zhong Shan Zhuang, the, mm-hmm. like the, and which could literally be referring to Sun Yat-sen, uh, yeah. rather than, and where the, as in the West, it's, we call it the Mao suit. Um, and then it, how it, not only does it symbolize that kind of Republican uh, era, but it also uh, connotes more of a, as you talk about in the book, a kind of gender-neutral 
or a, a sex a sexless uh, kind of uh, form, which is really interesting in, in that in the West it's usually only appropriate for for men, like as you say, like Bond villains right, who wear these suits and kind of just connote this Chinese communist conspiracy thing. Um, so can you talk a bit about the Mao suit as it kind of operates as a, as a representation more of the PRC yeah, as a counterpoint to the Qi Pao? Yeah, I mean, I would say, so because the Qi Pao, I mean, the Maoists, of course, allowed the Qi Pao to be used for official functions for the first few years of the mm-hmm. regime, and they they disallowed that as a, as a clothing option. And it was replaced by more other kinds of formal wear, all mm-hmm. of which were consolidated under the term Mao suit for the U.S., but much later. Um, I mean, most of the early reports of what Mao was wearing or any Chinese official was wearing was, like, you know, bland, like, uh, mm. shapeless, you know, all, all these kinds of words that describe a, a kind of a uniformity of look that had no aesthetic value mm-hmm. and no no taste. Um, and that was supposed to be gender neutral in terms of rendering men and women equal within China. But in the U.S., they just they, they read it very much as a way of taking agency away from women. So mm-hmm. if women would find agency in um, uh, masquerading, if you will, then, mm-hmm. then they, that became something that the Maoist, the Maoist regime disallowed, um, at least in the popular press. That's how it was, it was continually read. So the discourses were really, really different, and I, I wanted to think more about the U.S. discourse in popular culture. Because I would also say, I was writing this chapter, this, this is the chapter that had the most feedback from colleagues when I was at conferences mm. or whatever. Because inevitably, someone who was a generation ahead of me would come up to me after I was talking about the mouse, and they said, well, I used to wear one of these when I used to go to meetings <laughs> in the 60s, and I had all this activist fervor, and mm. I totally buy. Mm-hmm. But it was, that was not part of my project, just because I, I didn't feel like I could account for this like particular div- diversity, and it hadn't been documented very well um, by anyone. I mean, I think William Way has a line about it in his, his History of the Asian American Movement mm. in that book. But there, I mean, a lot of people, particularly women, said, you know, I wore this because I identified with uh, how they perceived Maoist politics mm-hmm. in the 60s. Um, and that I decided not to make part of my my book, because my book was looking at sort of mass, more mass media um, and less individual performance on the ground, because I think that would have required a different kind of methodology, that mm-hmm. is, interviews and things like that. Um, in the end, what also interested me about that was the major Asian-American text that came out at that time, like Flower Drum Song, in the popular press, there's all this discourse about Maoist clothing, and then when you get to, like, a Hollywood film, it disappears. Like, mm. so you never, ever see the outfit itself, even mm-hmm. though anywhere else you look, you would find mention after mention of the uh, clothing. Mm-hmm. So I found mm-hmm. that contrast very interesting, and I was curious how, why the absence. So... I think I, this is also the part of my book that a lot of people had the most trouble with because whereas everything else is about a material object and the way it circulates, the kinds of effects it has, this part of the book, at least the beginning of the mouse section, was structured around an absence or a structuring absence, mm. if you will. Um, and then I look at how people appropriate that outfit later in decades, decades later. Um, mm-hmm. And continuing to do it even now, you see like... Just in Halloween costumes, right? <laughs> this kind of right. parade. Yeah, the Maoist cap is everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. So, and I, I mean, I think it's it was it's interesting because partly because the notion of the suit, um, like the Western in Chinese, obviously the Western the, the name for suit is uh, uh, Fu, which mm-hmm. is like Western clothing, right? So mm-hmm. that a man's suit is Western clothing, um, and the. There is, I mean, people will say if you ask specifically, okay, I'm looking for like a jacket that now they can wear or whatever, you know, they'll give you Zhong Shan Chang as the translation because uh, Sun Yat sen was the, thought to be the first person to wear that garment. But actually, the, the people had all kinds of different names for the outfits that mm-hmm. were being worn during the Maoist era, which is quite long after all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, the styles kept changing. If, um, not extensively. So my my 
finding her that like even as they even if there was that kind of shift those shifts in China itself in the U.S. those shifts didn't register. It was just this continual sort of homogenous homogenization process that the, the Maoist government had instituted, and mm. that was also reflected in maps of China where you saw big red hands coming over the whole from China <laughs> all over the Pacific and things like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, it seems like it was almost more effective in creating that homogeny and and how Westerners saw China almost more than in China itself. Yeah, yeah. And I think, so in that way, this part of the book is really, in terms of the scale, it's really about a, a certain scale of representation. So I'm looking mm-hmm. at, at least in the initial chapter, in sort of how do Mao suits register in sort of to the broad public as constructed through newspapers mm-hmm. and um, very popular media. Um, and then I move on to sort of appropriations of that in in. Uh, more idiosyncratic kinds of cultural productions, mm. like uh, um, Sun Kuangchi and other folks like that. But I think, unlike the Chi Pao chapter, where I was interested in particular agents and the way they shape a, a historical moment or help shape a historical moment, um, the Maoist era, because of what I found in my research, it seemed to be much more about articulation of the masses and how, mm-hmm. so how are the masses represented at any given time. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's, uh, let's move on to the tuxedo, which is, I guess you could also call a counterpoint to the Mao suit. Uh, you described the tuxedo as, in a way, stemming through Chinese dress in different uh, historical iterations, but also as it kind of uh, also operates as a, a very different from the Q in that it, it has a kind of idealized masculinity that the West also kind of notices as a masculinity, whereas the Q, they, it was a very feminized object to a lot of Westerners, it, like represents a tail or a braid, or a ponytail of some sort, um, and also representing the, um, the tuxedo and a- adaptability to Western cultures. Can you tell us a bit about your epilogue, how you end on the tuxedo? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think it, were I writing another book, the tuxedo part might be much, much longer because mm. it, it's, it is the only object in my study that spans the entire length of the study. So that mm-hmm. is, it's, it starts in the late 19th century and continues to today, whereas all the other objects rotate in and out of fashion. But because it was, because that potentially meant it was going to be so complicated at different moments and at different locations, I wanted to just offer a reminder at the end that there are, there were always other ways of thinking, even if there was a dominant way of imagining Chinese modernity or Chineseness in a given era, there are always counter imaginations of what Chineseness might be like, and one of those is embodied in the tuxedo, mm. um, which is unlike a sort of Chinese object moving to the west. It's the or in sort of that direction of the Sino-American interface. It goes the other way, so it it starts in New York and and moves. Is appropriated by people in in the coastal cities in China first, and um, continues to be worn today. So, I wanted just to mark that as a contrast, and also because mm-hmm. I wanted I had started early in the book, Jackie Chan appears, and I thought, oh, okay, Jackie Chan would make a nice like, <laughs> comeback in the end. Because mm-hmm. with the, in the Q section, he, he's uh, he's also there. Yeah, yeah, and so you know, because I'm a little obsessed with with. Jackie Chan. <laughs> so I thought, okay, I'll bring him back. And also because the the film that I use, the Tuxedo from 2002 by Kevin Donovan, is it's all about fashion as a as a kind of technology. But in the film, it's a literal technology. It's like a mm. super suit um, to make your crime fighting agent a superhero. Mm. Uh, and that rendered a lot of the claims that I was trying to make about clothing very uh, transparent. Parent, mm-hmm. the wrong word, or it sort of it, it materialized them in a way. So mm-hmm. it literally showed a an outfit enabling someone to enter a different social context, or changing their appearance, or granting them access to social worlds they didn't have access to before. Those kinds of things were all very. I, I mean, they were just blatantly in the film. So I thought oh, this would be useful for me to mm-hmm. wrap up my study with because in other. Some of the other objects I'm looking at do that kind of work more in a more subtle fashion, and the tuxedo does it, you know, very, very clearly. Also, there's this moment when Jackie Chan has to impersonate James Brown, and there's this way in which my study is also very in dialogue with um, American studies' interest in intersectionality or, or I, I don't 
necessarily love that word because it understands racial formations as discrete. But in terms of, you know, here is a African and American, Asian American um, interface, if you will, that I thought was also very productive to think through because a lot of my chapters, like in the Q section, I discuss how the Q, um, what it does in relation to African-American racialization and also Native American racialization. So it was a way to bring back some of those concerns. Um, also, it, it moves a little bit from the visual to the vocal. So it gave me a way to talk about other aspects of performance that had sort of been not the central focus of, of the book until that, until that point. Mm-hmm. The vocal, you mean, as, as in how he can, how he sings in the in the film? Yeah, how he sings. So he puts on the student, so he, then he, like, you know, he adjusts his tuxedo, if you mm-hmm. will, and then he enables him to sing like James Brown. Oh right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so there's a way in which movement and and voice sort of embodied that is embodied performance mm-hmm. is is salient in in the scene I discuss mm-hmm. um, of, of Jackie Chan singing as if you, as the emperor of soul um is what they call him in the film mm-hmm. so for all those reasons i thought it was it would be it would be a useful way of thinking about differently about the other objects so originally that was in the introduction or one version of the introduction the tuxedo was there and then someone had pointed out quite logically that i kept saying i was not interested in linear history and yet my objects lined up exactly in linear order, so what, uh. what was I thinking? <laughs> so, so they suggested I move it to the end, and actually I think that also was a really useful suggestion, because mm-hmm. it, hopefully it makes you rethink uh, each iteration or each object um, in a kind of more comparative context. So as the queue is circulating, so too is the tuxedo. As the chi power is circulating, so too is the tuxedo. Mm-hmm. As the mouth getting such with a tuxedo. I thought, so for me, actually, that worked really well, but it, I wasn't, um, you know, when you write a book, it's very helpful to have a lot of friends and colleagues give you comments because it will help you see things that you cannot see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, it's, and the tuxedo also is being so, uh, like, in almost every uh, country, like, well, India is a good example. There's the, the tuxedo and the Western dress is always there, despite, like, the Nehru outfits and things like that. So it seems to transcend a lot of the, uh, the the focus on China to kind of bring it out into a broader range. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. I haven't quite thought about it in those terms, but that's useful, too. I mean, I am, I mean, I mean it, it is the most, uh, probably the most commodified mm. object in my study. Uh, maybe not, maybe the, I don't know. But, you know, it's certainly one of the more, it's certainly, it's certainly a commodity that circulates quite widely. And so mm-hmm. I think... That is also just a reminder that, okay, so even if all of these objects, even if, like, I make some big claims for the way people use certain kinds of dress, so even as, as those kinds of claims are being made, I do want to say, like, at the same time, often fashion is a force of commodification, mm-hmm. and that has good and bad effects. Uh, well, Sean, we've taken up a, a lot of your time. We're a bit over an hour in now. So can you tell us uh, a bit about any new research that you've been working on lately? What what follows a project like this? Uh, so, well, there's, always, there's a couple pieces, um, individual pieces that are meant to build on some of the work that's in the book that I didn't, sort of not happy with the way I elaborated or, or I wanted to do more with, but I felt like in the context of the book, it wasn't the right um, framework. So mm. I'm doing some work on elaborating the queer section mm-hmm. from my book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one set. I, I write quite a, a lot at any given time, so and then I have these two other projects. One is, um, I guess I'm, I'll just say one of them. The major project is called uh, The Chinese Atlantic, Seascapes mm. and the Theatricality of Globalization. That's the current title anyway, and that's mm. been developed over the last several years through the, my participation in the Framing the Global Project. Um, so it overlaps with the, my work on this overlap with the with the work on the uh, Chinese looks book, hmm. and one of the things that I find when I look back is so that project has put me in dialogue with a lot of social scientists. So my claims about methodology and stuff, I think a lot of the social scientists I've worked with have helped me think through why those questions are important and what they, how I might answer them. Mm-hmm. So you see some of that in my book, and then in in the globalization project, it becomes more of. Uh, but even more sort of articulated in that in that direction, and that book is about seascapes as you know the watery equivalent of landscapes, 
mm-hmm. in different kinds of forms. So they're both paintings and they're also sculptures and um, live performances by the sea, all those kinds of things, mm-hmm. um, in different areas in the Atlantic. So to try to, it also it picks up the theme of, of capitalism and its circulation in, in Chinese looks and tries to make it more, more the central focus. Mm. So it's looking at the Caribbean and um, other species in the Atlantic uh, to think about how Chinese labor, what Chinese labor did in those areas and how they might be seen as precursors to a Chinese-inflected globalization today. Well, so- sounds just as ambitious <laughs> and intimidating, but I'm glad you're uh, keeping on this track. That sounds really fascinating. Thanks, thanks. Um, okay, well, uh, I think we're out of time, so I really want to thank you for being on the show today, and I hope you stay out of the polluted uh, Shanghai air that might be there right now. And thank you very much for your time, and I think staying out of the pollution here is not possible. But thanks anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thank you very much. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.